Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kazingram Dialogue. This is IG Makan. My guest today is Amos the Dober. No, it's just Amos Dober. Amos is a good friend of mine. Uh, he's a theologian, a philosopher. We got deep into some heavy, heavy topics. Uh, we got talking about religious language and whether we can properly speak uh, rightly about God or whether our language about God is meaningless, as uh, Quine had said and Kant, the philosopher Kant. And then we talked about AI and whether AI truly understands. We also talked about what would happen if we found uh, a new species of humans. Would they all have salvation in terms of Christianity? And then we talked about our liberal society and why the liberal society is failing right now um, with its emphasis on freedom. But freedom here in the liberal in the, in the liberal context is very different from what freedom has always meant in the classical sense. So check it out. Good to be here. Hey, hey, Mas, thanks for doing this. Yeah. So, how's it? How's it been? You just graduated yeah. from your master's in theology. Yeah, it feels good. Yeah. Uh, a bit surreal. Yeah. Talk closer to the mic. Okay. Yeah. So what? What was your What was your uh, dissertation on? So I was I was talking about religious language in Thomas Aquinas, and just like how he applies that to different doctrines, so especially the Trinity. So like. Is the problem of divine names, like how, how are we able to speak meaningfully of something that transcends our intellect? Yeah, talk closer, yeah. So, yeah, I was just basically outlining like how he talked about like the doctrine of analogy and yeah, just language in general. Why is it important that we have this um, discussion on, uh, on language when, re- when referring to God? Well, I mean like if I, if I make a claim and yeah. I say something like, well, you know, God is triune, but we can't understand him. Or, um, like, God is good, but we don't really know what that means. Like, you need, you need to be able to articulate, like, okay, why is your language meaningful? Why are you not just saying gibberish? Like, you know, um, I forget who it was. It might have been uh, Quine. Okay, yeah. He, he was sort of, like, critiquing religious people, and he said, like, Okay, the um, the statement "God is loving Father," mm-hmm. right? So, Quine is not a, a theist, and no, Quine is an anti-theist. Yeah. So he he would th- say something like, "Well, th- the way that people apply the phrase God is loving Father." So it's, you say you win the lottery, and you say God is a loving Father, and so mm-hmm. that's expressing thankfulness. And then you know, say I don't know something tragic happens, and you're like, "Well, God is loving Father." It's meant to be like you know some sort of self-reassurance in the face of tragedy. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, something else happens. Um, yeah, you say God is loving father. I'm, I'm not in control. So it, it could just mean like anything. So how, like, what does it have reference to? And how does it actually mean anything for us? So when you say like, so is, is this, is his criticism that, um, theists, when they when they uh, are referring to God, it seems gibberish because there's no sense of reference as yeah. to what the words mean because you can't know who God is. Yeah. Okay. And so, what's the uh, what's the uh, what's the um, response to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, if I could maybe illustrate the problem. A bit, yeah. Yeah. Go for a, it. A bit more. Um, 
So another big objector to the idea of religious language is Immanuel Kant. Okay. So he, he would just say like religious language is moral language. It describes yeah. uh, the way that we feel we need to act in the world. Okay. Um, so he would think that anything outside of like sensible experiences of, of causation, we can't like talk meaningfully about that. Like we, we can't talk scientifically about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we, we can talk morally about quite a number of things. But even even then, like it's not it's not anything that's measurable, verifiable. It's it's just sort of like, yeah. So it, you mean he he he's saying Immanuel Kant wants to say that you can talk morally about many things. Yeah. And yeah, what? Go ahead. No, no. Like he, you, you can talk morally about many. Uh, you can talk morally about many things, but when it comes to uh, language about God, you, you have no sense of uh, understanding as to what you're saying or what you're claiming. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so is that so? When it comes to something, uh, well, it's not trivial, but something that people will often say. People who are theists mm-hmm. uh, will say, "Oh, God is love." Yeah. So for Immanuel Kant, it's like, well, it's just that's just an emotion you're expressing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, the question is like how. Like you claim that God transcends all sort of like created categories, everything within your field of experience. Okay. But you use things within your field of experience to refer to God. So how how does that transfer happen? How do oh. how, does, how do those mm. things refer? Okay. And it's that that transfer that we can't know for Immanuel Kant. Yeah. So what is so you when you your dissertation was <clears throat> you were using. Um, Thomas Aquinas and what's his response to religious language? Yeah, so Aquinas would take like I, I guess a realist view of of causation. So, um, <clears throat> in some sense, like the being of the effect is pre-exists in the being of the cause. Can you explain that in a uh, in a in, way in in a simpler way for non-philosophers? Sure. So, um, what do you mean by being exists? What are you referring to by being? Okay. Well, I, I'm I'm meaning something very, very technical. Okay. So, the idea within like Aristotelian philosophy is that, um, like like being is the primary category. If you if you try to abstract um, something from all like all re- all realities that you experience all realities that you can conceive being is the most universal thing okay and so everything else like that exists is just like limitations on being on being and by being you it it refers to like the act of existing yeah okay so everything so everything in the everything in the world world by world like the general and broad philosophical sense like everything that exists yeah is the common ground between all of them is being yeah okay okay from there yeah so like if if all things are just like limitations of being like why why does being exist at all is a question that aquinas like that's sort of his point of departure Mm -hmm. so he wants to say that um like all things that are limited forms of being are like composites of being in essence so es- yeah. yeah, essence is sort of like 
some principle in things that limits them to being certain types of being. So like a, a dog is limited to being a dog and not yeah. an octopus. Yeah. But when you think of the concept of what a thing is, like an essence, okay. like when, you, when you try to conceive of that, uh, it doesn't entail that it exists. Okay. So like you can, so you can conceive of what a dog is, but yeah. your conception of what a dog is does not entail that the dog necessarily exists. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, like a, a classic example is um, if, you, if you think of a dog, a unicorn, and a dodo. Yeah. And tell somebody who's had no experience of it, of those three animals. Uh-huh. Well, one, one currently exists in the world. One did exist in the world, and one is imaginary. Mm-hmm. They, like, how would they be able to tell which one if they've never had an experience of it? Right. So, there's, there's nothing just in the concept of what the thing is that entails that it exists. Okay. So from there, what's the, what's the next step? So um, the next step is is that, well, if there's nothing in the con of what a of what a thing is that entails that it exists, there must be some cause of it make of it existing that has to be something outside of itself because the essence just is what it is, mm-hmm. and then from there, like Aquinas goes up to God, okay, and says like God is being itself, meaning like God is his own ex- mm-hmm. like he is. Well, what do you mean by God is God is being? Um, <clears throat> so it's sort of like a negative argument, right? Okay. Like all other things need explanation, but that explanation can't be just like inf- can't be an infinitely regressing explanation mm-hmm. because it would just end up explaining nothing. Okay. Um, so you can't it can't be a brute brute fact. Yeah. Like can't. You can't end something with a brute fact, and neither can you just keep on appealing to a previous explanation to explain a current explanation yeah there needs to be some like, universal ultimate explanation okay if if things are going to make sense at all uh-huh. um so yeah he arrives at god from that and if god is being itself and like most all the finite things that we encounter in our yeah. everyday experience are composites of being in essence so we can say that well in some sense there there's some sort of overlap so we're able to take aspects of the things that okay. we encounter in our everyday experience and transfer them because there's that overlap in being. Interesting. Okay, so you, so then, so the, so the, it's like because everything shares in being or the act of existing. When you refer to God, because He has an act of existing, mm. some language transfers, some meaning in our language transfers transfers over when you're referring to God. Yeah, like some things. Some things. Yeah. Okay. So like um, some concepts that we have. Like, um, I don't know, our, con- our concept of materiality doesn't transfer because that necessarily implies limitation to being a certain type of thing. But yeah. some of our concepts don't seem to have an upward limit. Okay, so like, like um, what would an example be? I mean, he, he uses intelligence as an example because intelligence is just like you, you grasp the concept of something else. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, there's an infinite amount of concepts that you can grasp. And so having intelligence doesn't necessarily imply limitation. Okay. Um, goodness is another one. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Okay. And is this so? This is in contrast with Immanuel Kant's um, uh, rejection of religious language, or at least when it comes to God, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, so what's what's the opposite end of uh, what's the opposite side of Immanuel Kant? Because this one, because Thomas Aquinas' position seems like the middle ground, right? Um, so it's, 
Emmanuel Kant would be um, uh, what would you? It would be like would it be equivocal language? Yeah, all language is equivocal. Okay, and I, I suppose the opposite would be some sort of like naive theism where what's you know, yeah. all, all the language that you apply to applies to God in a straightforward way. Hmm. So to say that like, well, God is a loving Father, it means you know something in a straightforward sense. So you know, picture bearded man in the sky kind of thing hmm. but maybe with some supernatural qualities that that distinguish him from just normal bearded fathers like my own okay so so this would the night i like this this term that you use naive theism mm. this is interesting this is a very interesting term i think i'm going to keep it now naive theism okay is that um it seems to be quite prevalent though naive theism now this now this is going to be a common word. I'm going to use okay. throughout this podcast. I, I just made it up on the spot. So, <laughs> uh, but it, that it does seem to be quite common within, um, within Christian circles generally. Oh, for sure. Right, and cr- by Christian, I, I'm referring both to like the the Catholics are in it, the Protestants, the Orthodox, the yeah, the weird ones on the sides, <laughs> the weird ones on the sides. Okay. Yeah, I I mean. It is a sort of common thing, but it's like something that the church has opposed for all its history. Hmm. So, <clears throat> like you can read about monks in the uh, in the fourth century um, who, who just live in the desert and who want, really want to like practice the virtues. Um, and you know, like a theologian will go out and talk to them, and will just like basically make fun of them because they believe that God is a material being. Wait, who's who makes fun of who? So. Uh, I think I think it's in John Cassian's sentences, like um, yeah, like there there's some monks who who just believe like the most bizarre things about God. So like you know, God is a material substance. He lives in the sky. Oh, and interesting. Yeah. So um, yeah, like the church has always sort of rejected a naive the- like a naive theism, but like it seems to be a default position. If you're just like a kid imagining hmm. what God is, oh, yeah, of course, you just use like different pictures and images that you come up with in your mind, right? But you know, those don't apply in a straightforward way. If you actually think that, well, God is what accounts for the material world and everything in it, and so He can't be like it in a straightforward hmm. way. So, if the church, if the Christian church has consistently rejected this over her Two thousand years. Yeah. Um, why is it that you still have a majority of well-known theologians and philosophers holding the, to this sort of? Now, I should really clarify when I say holding to this sort of yeah. theism. But I mean, it seems like the God of Thomas Aquinas, or at least the one <clears throat> that the Christian Church has held to, is a is very similar to the God of uh, to the God that the Islamic philosophers attained to yeah um the jewish philosophers and obviously aristotle mm, uh no not aristotle. well i mean like aristotle's unmoved mover seems very similar to um the one that is in some ways yeah okay so if that's the case why is it that you have all these big well-known christians um who hold to a deviant or a almost 
not almost. It, it's it's not similar at all. It seems like uh, the idea that God is existence itself is not yeah. a very common held belief. Um, I mean, lack of education is is one issue. Uh, but lack, it's not that but, lack of philosophical education. But it's not th- that's not the case with like like the theologians and the philosophers within the Christian realm, right? They outright rejected. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. I can understand with the common, uh, with the layperson. Yeah. You know, who, you know, sure. They, you know, they don't have, they may not have philosophical training. They may not have done uh, research. Sure. You know, that's, that's understandable, but. Yeah. I guess uh, a lot of people, a lot of contemporary theologians would think that after the critiques of Immanuel Kant, we need to like rescue religion and sort of, you know, do theology anew within a different metaphysical system. And so they, they tended to, you know, think that, okay, if God is transcended in the way that Thomas Aquinas thought he was, then we can't really talk meaningfully about him. And so we need to come up with like some some sort of more, some sort of less transcendent idea of God. So we need to think of God using like personalist categories. So we, we need to talk about God as if he has emotions in the same sense we have emotions, as if he's growing and maturing in a way similar to the way that we are growing and maturing, but just, you know, with a few less limitations. But why couldn't we say that about God? Why couldn't we say yeah, that about God? Like, well, what I think ends up happening mm-hmm. is that, <clears throat> so with, within like a lot of like philosophical paganism, so I'm thinking of Aristotle here, I'll, I'll critique Aristotle. Yo, that's my guy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a small <laughs> critique. But like when it, Aristotle thought that like the universe was eternal, it didn't need explanation. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know. Just been there. Yeah, it's always just been there. And so when he talks about the on-move mover, he doesn't mean a cause which accounts for the being of the universe. He mm-hmm. just means a cause which accounts for the organization of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so the way that he thinks about God is always with reference to the universe. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a God who could have, always existed or a god who exists no matter if the universe doesn't exist or not okay so that the like the god of aristotle is not doing the same sort of explanatory work that the god of christian theism is okay or you know judaic or islamic theism that have a doctrine of creation Hmm. that think that well the being of the world itself needs explanation okay like why is there something rather than nothing right but i mean aquinas does say for Aquinas, it, you can't still argue for God even if the universe was eternal. For sure, right? Yeah, like he doesn't. He doesn't say that God. Cre- he doesn't say my argument depends on the universe being created. No, no, no. Um, created in time. Like he still thinks there needs to be but like an explanation for its being. Right, but it doesn't necessarily because, if I'm not mistaken, he says. That even if the universe was eternal, doesn't mean doesn't negate that God wouldn't have, doesn't negate the existence of God because God would be the one that holds the essence and existence together. Yeah, yeah. So he still accounts for its being. Right. But like with somebody like Aristotle, um, the universe just accounts for its own being. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so going back to um, this naive theism. Mm. Um, is it wrong to say that uh, to say that God changes, you know, at least within the Judeo-Christian 
um, framework. Is it wrong to say that God changes his mind? Like uh, at the way you and I would change our minds? Yeah, for sure. Why? Um, well, I guess, like, you, you, so um, all changes would be a change from non-being to being. And so, if God were to change from non-being to being, like mm. it, it would suggest that he's not being itself. And so, it would mm. sort of negate, like, the explanatory work that God is supposed to do in okay. the philosophical system. Okay, so this would, this would outright reject, um, uh, man, open theism. Oh, for sure. Right? Yeah. Because open theism holds that God changes his mind and God even allows the agents in the universe to decide the future. Yeah. Um, but this... But well, I, I mean, on the classical account, God still decide, God still allows beings in the universe to decide the future. Hmm. But the, it's always sort of like, well, the beings in the universe only exercise their free will because they, their free will is receiving its being from God. Okay. Oh, okay. Wait, can you explain this a bit more? So this understanding of free will seems to be quite different from contemporary understanding of free will. Yeah, so a contemporary understanding of free will is, you know, there can be no sort of antecedent, yeah. no prior. What is it called? Libertarian freedom. Yeah, libertarian versus freedom. So there can be nothing that acts on your will yeah. prior to you making a decision if it's to be genuinely free. Okay. Like with with someone like Thomas Aquinas, like the you know that's true in a sense. If you're thinking about causes, like if if you were to restrain me from eating the pork that's cooking on the stove, yeah, I wouldn't genuinely make a free decision whether or not to eat the pork on the stove. Okay, um, with with somebody like Thomas Aquinas, it's like it's not the same type of cause. So it's like. I, I make the free decision to eat the pork on the stove, but I'm, I'm only able to make that decision because, like, the being that undergirds all the conditions of that decision okay. comes from God, and, like, the being of my, my actually making that decision uh-huh. comes from God. Like, every single act of, of limited being needs some explanation, like, ultimate explanation. Is this, is this also in contrast to compatibilism? Yeah. It is. Yeah, if if like the contemporary sense of contemporary sense of compatibilism. Yeah, compatibilism, compatibilism. Yeah. (laughs) What? How is it different? Is it different because in in contemporary circles of yeah? So with with compatibilism, it would sort of be like, well, IJ restrains me from eating the pork on the stove, uh, and so on, but I'm I'm still free in some sense within that. Like I, even though you are constrained by me, yeah. Even though I'm constrained by you, there's and my my ability to make decisions are limited. There's still some limited ability to make decisions, and so we just need to say that that's the sense in which we're free. So, within compatibilism, it's that you can both be determined and free. Yeah. So you you could be determined. Say the say we have a, yeah. a human being. Yeah, that has uh, uh, the the thought experiment where you, there's a human being and a mad scientist have put a little little um, little machine in their brain, mm-hmm. such that every time they want to have ice cream, the machine says "tink," it triggers something, and it always goes to "no." Mm-hmm. But the ma- but the the person 
doesn't know that he has this little device in his head. Yeah. So then every time he's like, so his friend says, hey, do you want ice cream? Immediately the machine, uh, the, the device gets triggered and he says, nope, I don't want any ice cream today. Mm-hmm. So in the comp- compatibilist view, this would be freedom. Right? He's still free. Like it's the, it's the, he's still determined in one sense, but he's still free. In, yeah. So he's still the one making his decisions. He's still the one. Okay. But. But this would be in contrast to... But the to, decisions are caused by something else. Okay. And this is in contrast to libertarian freedom, which is like... Yeah. You can't even... There's nothing. Yeah. But then this is... Both of them are... But yeah, both of them are actually compatible with with the Thomist idea of, free, of freedom. Because like the, the Thomist idea of freedom is just talking about like... Um, sort of the being undergirding freedom. And so you, you can be a Thomist and a libertarian, or you can be a Thomist and a compatibilist. Okay. Like I, I would think that a Thomist libertarian view is a bit more sensible. Hmm. When you say Thomist, you're referring to those who follow Thomas Aquinas. Okay, my man. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so the um, uh, about op- about open theism, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of God changing his mind and, uh, I guess, having the future open. Yeah. Why do you think that's attractive to people? Like, why is that so attractive? Um, hmm. it, is it because we don't like... Is it, is, it a, is it a rebellion against church history? You know, because we've always seen God as the one who doesn't change. is immutable, doesn't change. Um, but then you see passages you start because the open theist will refer to passages within um biblical scripture yeah um where god seems to change his mind right um yeah i mean they'll they'll appeal to them in in a pretty selective way Mm. but i think like i think it's more of a philosophical condition that drives open theism rather than rebellion to the way what's what, what, what would that be well um well, it is, it's a sort of post-Kantian movement mm-hmm. and it really picked up steam like after the Second World War and people were talking about like how how do we understand solidarity? Like that seems to be a huge ethical... How do we understand solidarity? So- solidarity. Okay. So, oh, solidarity okay. of all people. Yeah. So, like when, if we're to have solidarity in our suffering, like, you know, God, God needs to be relatable in some sense to us. So, God mm. needs to enter our suffering Right, and so he he needs to change in a way similar to us, so that he can feel our suffering, yeah, or s- empathize or sympathize with our suffering, yeah. And it, I mean, on the classical account, it's not that God didn't, but he didn't do it in the same way that humans did. Okay, and so like I, some people thought that well, it was hard to have um, any sort of community or friendship with God hmm. in the same sense that we have friendship with other people. Okay, and the way that we have friendship with other people is, is something that's a bit more attainable. Uh huh. Um, who's that theologian um, who's well known for after the war uh, well known for uh, God's suffering uh, Jürgen Moltmann Jürgen Moltmann right that's right because yeah. his idea was that it, God must must have suffered in a real sense right yeah otherwise we, otherwise God is a what's the word like a stone cold yeah, um, you know, like thug. <laughs> yeah, 
but Jürgen Moltmann seems to be accepted by quite a number of high-ranking theologians. Yeah. Which is, what? Like what? Um, yeah, I think he, he's maybe a bit less accepted now. Like, people still think that he has, like, quite a bit of insight. But um, they, they would think that he sort of misrepresents the classic idea of God, like the, the God of classical theism. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so who's the God of classical theism? God of classical theism, God of Thomism, God okay. of his being itself. Um, so because God is being itself, like, he's, he's wholly active, and so he's, he's wholly emotional. Um, he has all the the being and perfection of being emotionally related to creation. Okay. And so it's not that he's some stone cold thug who doesn't change, but you know, he's already been feel, he's already been feeling, um, emotion from eternity. Okay. But it's not in the same sense that we would feel it. No. Okay. Yeah. So it's meant to be way more perfect and less limited than the way that we feel it. So, so God can be more merciful or more sympathetic to our suffering than we can be to other people's suffering. So how would you explain the passages in scriptures where God, from like plain reading, seems to change his mind? You know, we have um, him and Abraham. Was it him and Noah? Abraham. Yeah. Where he's sitting and it's like, oh, if you can find 50 good men, then I will not, you know, um, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Is it Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. Yeah. And then we went to 45 and 40 yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we went down to five, right? Yeah. Or 10. Uh, what, yeah. what, whatever. Whatever. It doesn't, doesn't really matter about the number, but God, he has a back and forth with, um, with this, uh, with, with Abraham, God, at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the, like scriptures aren't necessarily meant to be a philosophical textbook and communicate everything in a perfect way. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they use poetic devices all the time. You know, scripture can say that God is spirit, that God has a right hand, right, and all sorts of stuff like that. So you, mm, need, you need to mm. interpret things in light of the whole. And um, that's a good point. Yeah, in, integrate your reading into like, philosophical reflection on what's actually going on. Mm. Okay, so this it, it's common practice now mm-hmm. within. Um, I don't, I, maybe I'll, maybe I'll say like North American Christianity, which is, has been exported to many many countries. Yep. Um, to read the Bible literally. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. That it depends on what you mean by literally. Li- literal in the sense I'm reading whatever happens in Scripture as as if it's hard scientific fact. Yeah. And I. Yeah. Okay. I would maybe want to distinguish between literally and woodenly. And what? Woodenly, okay. To read, I mean, if you were to pick up a, like, a poem by John Donne, to read that literally mm-hmm. wouldn't be to take every single one of his metaphors and think he's actually talking about like the reality that he sees before him. Uh-huh. To read it literally would be to recognize that those are metaphors and that they don't, hmm. like, they don't intend something real. Yeah. Okay, and what's the, so and you, like to read it woodenly yeah. is to just like take a plain dictionary sense of the words mm. and how they work together mm. and think that that's, you know, that's how we need to read things. So like a, a lot of, a lot of the, the Bible is written in poetry. Yeah. So fun, fundamentalists often read the first few chapters of Genesis as mm-hmm. if 
this is a literal scientific history of the world. And when science doesn't match up to it, well, it's wrong because this is the word of God. Who's wrong? Science is Scientist, wrong. Scientists are wrong. Okay. But like the more traditional way of looking at it is like, no, this is like mystical poetry that's hmm. meant to tell us about the character of God and the dignity of human beings. And it does it in this highly stylized way. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's not even meant to be an origin story. Interesting. What's it supposed to be? Uh, it's just meant to, to say like, um, well, humans were created as God's special creation. Yeah. Humans fell away. Uh, God is responsible for all creation in some sense. But like, I mean, there's, there's tensions within the biblical narrative. Like, you know, the, the order of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is not the same. Um, yeah. And it, like, it's highly like symbolic and stylized. Hmm. So if, if you were to read the text in, in, it, in its historical context mm -hmm. and you were to look at the other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, like, um, you know, the gods create by, by fighting against the forces of nature. Mm. The, the sun and the moon are gods. But in Genesis, like God speaks and it happens. Mm -hmm. God creates the sun and the moon. Uh, I think that like, there's a mention of like sea monsters that were seen as like these, these big, terrible gods mm -hmm. in the ancient Near East. But God creates those things in, in Genesis. So this is in stark contrast to near, near ancient yeah. stories. Yeah. Hmm. Is, and if you compared them together, would would you see that this at least back then, the Jews, the Israelites, when they were reading it, not when they were reading, when they were telling the stories, their neighbors would have known this is a very different story than the stories that we tell. Um, I'm not an expert on the archaeological evidence, um, and I don't actually know how much there is, like about people reacting to. Jewish interpretations yeah. of creation. But I mean, like, if, if you and I were to read the ancient Near Eastern myths in um, uh, in comparison to, to yeah, Judeo Yeah, we would think stories. that they're, they're painting a pretty philosophically different picture oh, okay. of things. So, you know, hu humans in Genesis are um, like God's crowning jewel of creation. Yeah. They're meant to everything in the Garden of Eden is created for them and they're meant to tend it for their good and for God's good. Mm -hmm. But if you look at other ancient and Eastern creation myths, it's like the gods are, are struggling to, to work in creation and so they create humans to be their slaves. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the humans are basically just meant to be the servants of the gods. Um, and there's other like weird things like um, when people talk about um, like the story of Noah's Ark, um, like as as bizarre and strange a story that is. Yeah. Uh, Shit. My eyes burning. Yeah. Oh. I I was just making Bloody some uh, <laughs> some spicy pork and cutting up some ghost peppers oh. and made the mistake of rubbing his eye. I did. I did wash my hands. Oh my goodness! Doesn't I can't count. even open my eyes right now. You need to do it Holy. with like vinegar or something if you don't want it to burn. Ah. But. <laughs> getting, getting back to the story of Noah's Ark. Yeah. Um, so, in in the ancient Near East, right? Yeah. The, the gods, they create humans to be their slaves. And then when humans are too loud and the gods are trying to sleep, yeah. um, they get mad and they decide to kill them all by flooding the earth. But in, in Really? The, yeah. In the Genesis narrative, it has more to do with like justice. So, like humans are supposed to have dignity, but they keep killing each other. And so... In an act of like 
retributive justice is why it happens. And so, you know, it's not meant to be, I don't think it's meant to be a literal story where you read that well, God decided to kill everything on the earth just because of the injustice of humans. Hmm. But it's meant, it's meant to be a story that says like the, like the cosmic weight of justice is, well, like justice has a cosmic weight. It's, it's something that's, that's bigger than us. It's something we need to conform ourselves to. And it's no light matter. Right. No, so I, I, I was 100% listening to you. Mm-hmm. And I know you're looking at me and my eyes shut, my right eye shut. Yeah. And I'm tearing up. Crying. Yeah. So sorry if I said some words that I generally don't say <laughs> previously. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that, that is interesting because, um, it is quite common for Christians to hold that to to read um, Genesis in this what did you call it wooden way? Yeah, in this wooden way, and argue that oh you know the Earth is six thousand five hundred years old. Yeah, um, you know evolution's of evolution. chicken. <laughs> evolution is um, is false and so on and so forth. Yeah. But what's really interesting is that if you if you look at church history, right? Like that that sort of wooden reading did exist. But among, really? Yeah, among How the, common was it? Um it depends on who you who you're looking at. Among the academics it wasn't very common at all. It was more common to to think of it as like you know s- some sort of like poem that's communicating like deep mystical like metaphysical and theological mm. truths. Okay. Rather than just the wooden account. Hmm. So if you look at, like, Augustine has a literal commentary on Genesis. Okay. And it's not wooden at all. It's how, very, does, how does he interpret? Um, well, so he, he's, he's more of a Neoplatonist. And so he thinks that, well, the seven days aren't seven days. God created everything instantaneously. Hmm. And all, all, the different, um, all the different days in creation are talking about, like, the... The hierarchy of being, the dignity that each level has. Yeah. Okay. And it was common for church history to to be more in line with how Augustine would read things. Yeah. As opposed to how we, how um, North, North uh, man, fundamentalist, fundamentalist read. Yeah. Into scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay. And does this also affect? I mean, the um, what's the uh, what's that? Who's that guy? Ken Sham? Ken Ham? Oh, Ken Ham. Ken Ham, is that his name? Yeah. He's like the Genesis guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, is it that... Why Why do you think it is that it's, it's North American Christianity that became so prevalent? So, is the fundamentalist movement, when did it start? Uh, the fundamentalist movement started in the, like the early... Um, well, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Okay, who's the? Do you know who the guy was? I, no. Yeah. Okay. I can't, think, I can't think off the top of my head, but it was meant to be like a reaction to to certain readings that had. So, I guess after the Reformation, there was still quite a bit of mixture on the way that people were reading that narrative, but um, there was definitely more of an emphasis on saying, like, we just need to read the plain sense. 
Um, and, you know, that was an emphasis, but like a lot of the reformers would say, yeah, we need to read the plain sense in its historical context mm. and to, you know, pay attention to the genre of, of the narrative or of whatever passage we're reading and so on. But like eventually um, in, in reaction to, I guess, 19th century liberal readings of scripture, so trying to interpret scripture in light of... Oh, sorry, when you say 19th century liberal yes. reading, what, who are you referring to? Yeah, well, I'm just going to okay. explain. So a lot of like, um, like critics of scripture would take like a very naturalist and mechanistic view of the world and would want to say like, well, you know, we can't, we can't read all these, these miracle accounts, all mm. these different mm. bizarre happenings in the Bible as, uh, as historically true. And so we need to just make them about our like, liberal upper class morality. Okay, and so you know, I need to read um, the resurrection account about my per- as being about my personal authenticity, rather than like a historic event. Um, what do you mean? So, so, like, resurrection has to do with um, you know you you end up dying to the negative aspects of yourself okay. and learning to to live anew. And it's 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 sort of about like that's the that's the only interpretation that you can do yeah okay and so it it is in some ways similar to the earlier reading where it was not taking the wooden meaning and it was sort of trying to read scripture within a metaphysical system uh-huh. uh, but I guess among the fundamentalists there's a strong reaction to that because mm-hmm. it was just rejecting a lot of the traditional doctrines that they felt were necessary okay and so they just started to you know, out of out of reaction, swing the pendulum way far the other way, mm. and just think, you know, we we need to read stuff in a in a very straightforward, wooden manner. Okay, and do you think it's dying out this, or is it actually getting stronger? Um, I think it it tend it it's dying out quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I can't speak for different places in the world, but within North America. People who are who are reading and studying scripture tend to be a lot more educated, and because there's such like a challenge to say like, look, we just know a lot more about the world than we than we did back then. Yeah, and so we need to actually look seriously at you know at science and try to figure things out. So I I think the fundamentalism is dying, and the, it seems like fundamentalism is the one major cause for this idea that science and religion are incompatible that yeah if you adhere and hold close uh, hold science close to your heart then you can't be religious in any sense of the word yeah but historically that's never been the case no i mean like a lot of the who we think of as the the founders of modern science so like um so francis bacon was like a 13th century monk first came up with like the hypothetical deductive method and um well in, i mean in some sense in the hypothetical deductive method yeah well he he sort of thought like we need to speak closer to the mic Amos. yeah we need to form valid arguments and the, and verify them through sensory experimentation mm. and that's how we come to know the world mm. um uh, isaac newton he <clears throat> i mean groundbreaking scientist he spent like half half of his written works are commentaries on scripture really 
Yeah. Um, well, I don't think most people know that. No, most people don't know that. And some people do. Like, I think Richard Dawkins talks about what a waste of time it was and how much he, more he would have g- given uh, to the world in terms of science okay. if he hadn't, hadn't done that. Okay. So, pe- I mean, some people know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Descartes. Yeah, Descartes was a, was a scientist and a theist. Yeah. And it is funny because, you know, you have a majority, not a majority, a lot of um, Catholic priests tend to be scientists. Not a lot. Like, uh, maybe yeah, a lot is a stretch. Common among Jesuits. And, to be scientists. Well, not just among Jesuits. Like, um, so people don't realize, like, evolutionary genetics was founded by a, I think he might have been a Benedictine monk. Really? Uh, Mendel. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. What's his first name? I don't remember. Yeah, okay. So, if this is the case, why is it that we still have this idea? I mean, okay, of course, not not everyone thinks that science and... Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot more like, different historical forces at work in building <clears throat> up this narrative. Yeah. So, uh, I guess after the Reformation, uh, there's all sorts of different churches in Europe, and they all were sort of vying for political control. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I guess with the Thirty Years' War, so it was it was a war between like Catholic and Protestant Europe, mm-hmm. and like Germany was just butchered. Like so many people were killed. Mm-hmm. You know, mercenaries would roll up into a town, and fifty percent of the fifty sixty percent of the population would just be killed for just yeah. like that. Yeah, and so people after that started to feel, um, well, we can't we can't trust the Catholic tradition. Um, like these new Protestant sects tend to. You know they're interpreting things in different ways. Mm. How how can we actually find truth? And so there's a real people felt like we need to find um, some more immediate basis than than in metaphysics and abstraction. And okay. we just need to you know to trust directly verifiable sense experience. Mm-hmm. Just because of like you know the the religious systems philosophical reflection had just led to so much death. Yeah. So I, I can completely sympathize with mm. that. But I guess that was eventually blown up into a narrative of, well, these two ways of approaching the world are actually incompatible. Okay. Um, they don't mutually inform each other. Um, it's just one against the other. Okay. And that started to emerge in <clears throat> figures like like Voltaire, mm-hmm. who our, our understanding of um, Galileo's trial has been quite influenced by the French Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Who sort of took that conflict theory of religion and science after, you know, after the war? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so it's not historically accurate, but it, it's a completely under, understandable way of reading things at the time. Okay, but not. I mean, and scientism does play a big role in keeping this apparent divide divided. Yeah. Right, that scientism being the idea that science is the only form of rational of rational way of, of going about in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it does do a, a good bit for informing, or sorry, a good bit to keep that, that um, sense of divide going. Yeah. But I think a lot of people who were at some point committed to, a lot of like philosophers who were committed to scientism at some point, 
started to see it as, as pretty shaky. Mm. Like I think Bertrand Russell talked about how it confuses abstractions for realities. Mm. And so like, you know, it's, it's one limited area of explanation. Yeah. And uh, we, can't, we can't think that it explains like everything because it only investigates reality uh, in a very as, specific yeah, way so far as it's like mathematically quantifiable yeah and you know the way that we experience the world and what we know of the world is is more than that hmm. and so you know it's like one of the best tools we have for explaining things yeah but it's it's not all there is and like scientific method itself needs explanation that's ultimately philosophical mm-hmm. yeah I, mean, I, I it's very common i mean i hear it quite often with um with friends of mine who'll say things like Oh, you know, something, something, something. Um, um, I don't believe it because it doesn't um, use the scientific method or something like that, something vague like that. Yeah. But the scientific, there is no such thing as a scientific method. I mean, the scientific method is made up of like, you know, f- at least five kinds of investigating. One would be like um, uh, strong inductive, and then there's like weak inductive, and then there's a. Uh, Conject, uh, falsification theory which is also different than you have the yeah. hypothetical deductive um, methods so you have like you know I just mentioned four but there's at least five so you have these things and none of them are I mean the weak inductive and the strong inductive are kind of similar but the rest aren't so similar Yeah. so when you say the scientific method you can't just have a broad over because all of them are different ways of doing uh, investigating the world Yeah. but you know it, it, I mean people's fling that word scientific method around so frequently and i mean susan hack do you know susan hack it's a uh, philosopher yeah and she has i think the five signs of science scientism that she has okay um it's very interesting uh but in it she talks about it and she one of the signs for um seeing if the world and susan hack is not i'm pretty sure she's a committed atheist and okay. she has no she's not she has no like um sympathy for Right. religion or anything she's just talking about scientism and how it's negatively affecting people yeah but yeah she has one of the signs that she gives is that our use of um our use of uh our use of science scientific studies there's a and scientists all the time in in a common uh, language in a common um what is it parlay mm. parlance yeah um so she'll say things like saying so in the did a, did, a, did a scientific study and found that X Y Z, or so and so the scientist said this, and assume kind of putting the weight on the fact that it's science, therefore it's probably correct. Yeah, and she's like, this is one sign of scientism. That's, I mean, and I I use the word scientists. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, it is interesting how prevalent scientism is within the um, within our within a, a society yeah right? it's like everywhere you turn it's there yeah i mean people say they believe it but they don't live like that they believe that what do you mean well i mean amos talk closer to the mic <laughs> yes they they take things like personal testimony and um i mean even reading literature is a way of finding truth hmm. and it's not you know that's that's not truth that you find by scientific method right that's true yeah yeah you, uh, you, yeah, I, I mean, you can't really expect hu- humans to live consistently, though. With no, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 
No, I, I don't know if there's any point that history where humans have lived consistently. <laughs> yeah, I, it's true. I mean, there's, um, I think I was talking to Carlos, Carlos, as Carlos, um, our friend Carlos, who was also on the podcast. Yep. I forget what episode he was, but he was on the podcast. And I think in that, maybe it was in that podcast and I was talking about how you should, and I had brought up, I think it was like vegans, my qualms with vegans. Okay. Um, an animal rights activist and i was saying you know if you're if you're an animal rights activist and you're a vegan and you own pets you're being completely uh, you're living in a, a double standard you're being a hypocrite because by definition of having a pet a pet is a, a sort of slave to you they only <laughs> exist in so far as they give you some sort of pleasure right. and, and the pleasure is mainly a one-way street the, the pet just is there because they have nowhere else to go yeah you know you're the, you're the one that gives them food and so if you're an animal rights activist and you hold, you have pets uh, and you're out there trying to save the pig's life and then you're going to KFC crying about your daughter Helen who died and it turns out Helen is a chicken and then you're trying to make all the people in KFC feel bad, <laughs> you know? It, then And then you go home and you have this shriveled up vegan cat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> then, hey, you're being very inconsistent. You're living a double life. Uh, and But Carlos made the point. He's like, look, yeah, it's true. They would be living... A double life but you can't expect humans to be consistent yeah. in all their beliefs like i'm sure I'm, I'm not consistent in many of my beliefs so it's 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 just funny that we're like that yeah part of human nature i think that it's that we can't live consistently well yeah we're rational animals that are rational so little of the time it's astounding <laughs> well okay Here's the thing. What do you? What do? What do you? How would you explain to someone who says, "Okay, Amos, um, what is human nature?" And you're like, "Oh, it's a rational animal." It's like, "Okay, but you know, what do you mean by rationality?" And then, what would you say? Uh, the ability to attain to universal truth, like truth propositions of universal truth. Propositions of universal truth. So, an example would be what. <clears throat> Um, Pythagorean theorem. What about it? We're we're able to understand that. But uh, when um, highly intelligent artificial AIs, robots understand it? Well, I, I just wonder if they're, well, I don't wonder. I, I would follow John Sorrell in thinking that there's a distinction between um, like syntax and symbol manipulation. Okay. And, um, like humans programming, uh, you know, different like, hypothetical statements and, and relations into a computer, mm-hmm. telling them to behave a certain way if some conditions obtain and like giving it ways to measure those conditions and like actually understanding the the semantics, the intent of what's being said. Okay. So you mean with humans, you, the syntax, you understand yeah. the propositions laid in front of you? Yeah. So if I... Yeah, if I program a computer and I tell it, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example besides Pythagorean theorem, but, you know, if if X do Y, if Y, um, you know, do Z, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, I give a similar sort of, well, I mean, it's not a syllogism, it's talking about behavior, Yeah. but if I give some sort of like similar set of... Uh, things to a human being mm-hmm. they would they would understand like what 
what the intent behind that is yeah and what you know x y and z but how would you know that the human being knows the intent behind what's being so i i think a syllogism would be all men are mortal socrates is a man therefore socrates is mortal right yeah you could give that you could plug that into a computer say this Mm -hmm. say mad amos scientist uh mad scientist amos has a has created this like silicon robot yeah and has programmed this in um and then you give the same proposition to a you know a normal human being fully grown matured study philosophy let's just say gave them yeah you you you're you're suggesting that the ai though it could if you ask the ai to explain hey what, what do you mean by immoral mortal and then they explain mortal yeah mortality oh it means someone will die i mean they probably don't talk like that yeah uh and then you gave the same thing. You told a human being the same, asked the same question. They would say the same thing. So how would you know? How would you know one that the human being knows and understands what they're saying, and then and that they're not just regurgitating information, right? And how would you know that the AI does not really understand? It? Uh, how do how would you know that the AI is not understanding what they're saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. Um. At least, or like, what do you think? Like, I, I think that you, you sort of give, like, you you yourself understand your own inner life mm-hmm. and your own, like, subjective experience. Yeah. And then you, like, by analogy, you know, well, this person has a human nature because they have all the exact same like, physical things that I that I do. And therefore, they, they would probably understand in the same sense. But with, like, with a computer, you... Like you, you put in all the different hypothetical syllogisms and propositions, and like you know that you're just teaching it to manipulate symbols, right? Rather than you know teaching it semantics. So like, te- may- programming a computer to do something is mm. very different than teaching a child. Okay, okay. But couldn't the uh, computer also be taught like the child and le- learn and grow? I mean, we have like what's it called deep, yeah. deep mind. Yeah, you know, that's learning, learning. I mean, it, all, all these words that I use are couched in some form of. There's a bunch of assumptions being made when yeah. I use learning. And when I say, "Oh, this computer is learning," I'm assuming it's. I'm already assuming that it's learning the same way that a human being would learn. Oh, and I. Oh, when people say machines are intelligent, they're almost always assuming that intelligence. Is um, uh, is univocal across yeah. the species? Um, AIs and humans, not species. Wow, I'm in the future now. AIs are species, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some assumptions that go into that. But then, like how, like how would you differentiate? machine symbol manipulation hmm. no matter how complicated that it is yeah between human like human intelligence how would you distinguish that yeah because it seems that we're not just manipulating symbols right we, we understand something behind the symbols that's right that's true yeah we do seem to be understanding something more than symbols yeah it's my understanding like four plus five is nine yeah it's not just you know if if symbol four obtains and yeah. symbol five obtains output symbol nine. Right. And that's, 
I mean, I could be misunderstanding um, I, yeah, um, I, Saul Kripke wrong, but Saul Kripke okay. has the kus, the the kus symbol. Have you heard of it? I don't know. Kripke. Oh, he's, I think it says. Um, so suppose suppose that you you've always done math, right? Yeah. And that you've always done addition, but you've never added anything more than fifty-seven. Right. I think it's fifty-seven. So you always say you do one plus one equals two. You know, ten plus ten is. 20 and then 20 plus 37 is 57 right you're like wow i can do math i can do uh, equations i mean uh, additions sorry and then so kripke says well suppose i say what's 30 plus 30 and then you say 60 duh and then so kripke says well you can imagine that uh, sorry, and he says, "Well, what if the plus symbol has never been an addition, and it's been a quos symbol, a quos symbol, a quos? I think that's how you say it, like Q U U S, quos symbol. And the quos symbol states that if any number is below fifty-seven, the if the total is below fifty-seven, then you will always get the correct number. But any time an addition goes, any time you put two and two numbers together, um." The plus symbol is the quos. He calls it the quos symbol. Okay. Anytime you have like 30 quos 30, and if it's over 57, it will always be three. Okay. So his point is, well, and I could 100% be misunderstanding this, but I think his point is, the reason you know that the addition symbol is the addition is because you understand that there's like something behind the symbol. Yeah. You know, and you know that it's not a quos symbol. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's similar to what you're saying. We seem to understand something beyond the symbols that right. the machines have. Even if the machine could explain, like I would, I would think I, I would even go so far as to say that you know maybe in like hundred yeah, years you could you could give it some sort of complicated yeah like hypothetical proposition to to compute where you know if if somebody asks you what this symbol means like the cos symbol yeah they'd give you an explanation of it. Yeah, and they could give, and and the AI could give a very comprehensive explanation of it. Yeah, and like I, I think, like a lot of self-learning machines is like just a a system of of conditional propositions that are able to like build on each other. But then, does that ever amount to anything? Hmm. Anything more? Yeah, Uh, it's like. um, Did you ever watch Star Trek? Sometimes the old Star Trek, where um, oh man, I can't even remember. There was that. There was that thing that was looking for its creator. Is that machine that was looking for its creator? Okay, so anyways, the episode goes that uh, the crew is being attacked by something or they're trying to figure out, like something's attacking their system. And okay. they go out looking um, and they end up finding this thing. Like it's just like this, looks like a machine, but it's like almost ethere- ethereal machine. Okay. And at the end, what ends up happening is uh, at the end, at the end, what they end up finding is that this machine, this ethereal machine, is actually an AI that was programmed in the past by someone and it became so intelligent, but the creator had died or something had happened that this AI was going around the whole universe searching for the creator and it and it just kept getting smarter and smarter and it was almost a god at that point. Okay. Um, my point being. You know, in like a hundred years, I'm sure we could we'll be at a point where you'll have artificial intelligence. That's 
you know, maybe this is far fetched, but I'll say like almost indistinguishable from human beings. Sure. You know, we'll we'll have, we will have crossed that realm um, mm. with an artificial intelligence. I forget what the term is. Turing like, test. Yeah, the Turing test. You've gone past. You're like, okay, I can't distinguish this bro from this other bro. Yeah. You know. So at that point, like, if they act like they understand, I mean, I am using the word act. Yeah. What is it to say that they don't really understand? You know? Right. Well, I mean, I think pra- keep, yeah, pra- practically we would have no reason to say that they don't understand. And if, if machines were acting indistinguishably from, from humans, like we would just have no way to tell uh, in our day-to-day practical lives. But I'm sure there would be ways to test to see, like, okay, um, yeah, is, yeah, actually, that's a good question. Well, I mean, like, you know, I, I think the, I think the term act is important, you know, cause they're acting. Yeah. And I, like, I don't want to be a behaviorist and reduce consciousness to, to acting. Yeah. Right. And, you know, they're behaviorists, even though they were very popular for like in the sixties, no, before the sixties. Yeah. Like fifties, forties, fifties, whatever the time frame was. Yeah. I think the, at least what you're taught is uh, when you read the paper, I forget whose paper it was, where it said, well, yeah, of course it's not true because I could punch you right now and you don't have to react. doesn't mean there's no pain. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, of course, that's true. I don't know why nobody thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when it comes to AI, you're like, okay. You know, if we had an AI, I mean, there's that, I think I saw this a while back, maybe a few years back, where... Um, what the heck? Um, a few years back where uh, they created this robot that would sweat when it worked out. Okay. And so the way they made it do it is it, it had these it had this patch on a, a certain part. I think it's like on its chest. Mm-hmm. And it was made of this certain material that could excrete water. Okay. So when the robot would exert beyond a certain force, it would excrete water. So it was sweating. Okay. But at the same time, you're like, ah, yeah, that's very primitive. You know, it does, it's not really sweating. Yeah. But then if you look at human beings and then you take a very mechanistic view of human beings, then you're yeah. like a big robot. Sure. Right? Yeah. And yeah, and you're just, and so when it comes to intelligence or like rationality, if you were to create something, isn't distinguishable from humans, at least on the surface level, right? On the right, on the, not be, beyond the not, not beyond the skin, but like, uh, so I say not beyond the skin. So like the intestines, obviously they wouldn't have intestines. Yeah. Uh, why not? Why wouldn't? How would we ever distinguish them and say, oh yeah, these guys aren't really understanding stuff? You know, we'll just keep them as <laughs> we'll just continue to keep them as robot slaves. Uh, like it seems like they would be doing more than simple manipulation. What if they behave in certain ways? Yeah, I mean that I, that is what I'm saying. Because if you so if you consider human beings as a big machine, a very yeah. complicated machine, and we were then able to recreate a very complicated machine sure. like human beings, yeah, would we extend the same 
understanding of human beings to these things? Well, I mean, what what guarantee would we have that they have the intentionality that we do? What do you mean? Like we we would still know that the well, we might not know that one particular um, I don't know. I suppose we could call them terminators. Yeah, terminators. We'll call it we'll just call for the it, sake of this podcast. Yeah, sure, terminators. So yeah, <laughs> like in terms of practical reasoning, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't be able to distinguish a Terminator from a human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, we if we if we took them apart or tried to do surgery or something, we'd yeah. know that okay, they're they're a machine, um, and so that you know we don't think that they have the same intentionality that we do mm-hmm. because we know about something about their programming, anyways, and just like what are the basics behind okay. the programming. Okay. But we we also do know about human program programming, but like you. Because you know, we do operations, because we know, oh, this goes here, yeah. blah, blah, blah. It's very similar. Obviously, In, we're not the creator of human beings. You know? Yeah. No, we didn't make human beings. Yeah. Maybe the ancient aliens made human beings. Potentially. I mean, there is, you know, there's this um, ancient, ancient alien theory by the ancient alien theorists who claim that aliens were a slave race. We were created to be slaves to these uh, meta humans. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and then we were, and the the humans were. <clears throat> that's why. That's why in human history, you have like just like very very minimal pr- primal activities going on, like creations of tools, and then all of a sudden there's this explosion okay. of like civilizations. Right, and so the ancient alien theorists claim uh, that human beings the reason there was this explosion is that some ancient uh some meta human being humanoids came and manipulated the dnas of humans <laughs> to create intel to 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 so that intelligence could arise okay so that they could say be slaves be their slaves and create stuff but then what happened was the uh, the human beings became so smart and then the the gods became scared, and so not the gods, the humanoids. <laughs> so the two, so the humanoids had a battle. One of the humanoids said, "No, these people must be free," you know. And the other humanoids said, "No, these are our slaves," and they fought it out, and then something happened. But that's the ancient alien theorist. Uh, I don't know where on earth you're getting this from. Ancient alien theorist, Alex Jones. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I actually, I've never. I haven't. This is Alex Jones in a very long time because it's kind of weird. <laughs> but I was telling kind you, of. I was telling you that it would be interesting to listen to go back and listen to some of his things because of some of the claims he made, right? You know, and it it seems, turns out to be true. One of which is he has for years said there's a pedophile ring around the Clintons. Yeah, and Hollywood is full of pedophiles. Yeah, and people are like, come on, this guy's talking nonsense out of his ass. Yeah, and then. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, but it's like the most bizarre thing. How do you know this, Alex? Well, my team has been in contact with interdimensional aliens, <laughs> and they've given us some files. We have them right here on our desk. Yeah, but you know, beyond the beyond the persona, beyond the um, the craziness, you know, I mean, it, I think we owe it to ourselves to see whether his claims were true at least to an extent like i don't think he's a just a crazy guy 
I mean, I'm sure he's crazy. He's, I'm sure maybe he has mental problems, but I think he does. But doesn't mean that a, a well, person with mental problems can't speak truth. Yeah, he, right? he says he's playing a character. I okay. think some of the court cases surrounding like his his kid and his ex wife. Oh. He said like Alex Jones is a character. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, but yeah, like how much of that is like lucky guesses? Yeah. I, I'm sure that there's some sort of connection. Maybe somebody knew about something. Yeah. And like eventually some through some chain of gossip, he heard some right. something about it and he just like came up with this wild elaborate story that involved aliens and yeah. like Satanists and other things like right. that. But yeah, I I don't know if we owe it to ourselves to go back and Well not put, the whole I'm not saying put, go put back ourselves through <laughs> it's pretty funny to be fair. Uh, but I do think so. I would really like to know if some of his other claims were true, you know? Um, like whether aliens exist. Mm. <laughs> okay, here's here's something that I've thought about, okay? Okay. I've thought, okay, so human beings, at least the human beings that exist, the Homo sapiens right now, were part of a uh, number of other human species, yeah, right. humanoid species. Humanoid species, not aliens. Humanoid species. This conversation's got kind of weird. <laughs> There's the Neanderthals, and then um, I forget what the other ones were called. Yeah, but there are different human species, and we, the Homo sapiens, were come from a line of human species that survived. Yeah, and outbeat the Neanderthals. Neanderthals. I think I'm saying it correctly. I can yeah. never say it right. Um. So here's my th- question. So within Christianity, it is true, or it is claimed to be true, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of human beings. Yeah. Right? And he took on human form. Yeah. And within the meta story, Adam, <clears throat> part of the reason why Jesus needed to come, second person of the Trinity needed to come down to uh, and die on the cross is because Adam, um, Adam sinned. Yeah. And... He then made he corrupted human nature some in some way, right? And so when Christ died on the cross and resurrected, he then raised the human nature above the corruption, correct? Yeah. yeah. So, what if it turns out that half of us are not Homo sapiens? Oh, and what if it turns out because Jesus, assuming that Jesus took on human human form and it was a Homo right. sapien. Right? Sure. Probably was a homo sapien. Yeah. What if we come across, say, Australia? Turns out the Australians are homo... Sondros. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure we we know enough about DNA to know that, like, well, humans are, you know, humans emerged out of an aggregate of, like, pre-human humanoid uh, but jesus didn't take off jesus jesus wouldn't have taken those forms like yeah but like would you extend it would you would you say within christianity salvation must be extended to these rational i, creatures? I mean like the, there's enough like interbreeding and i like were they rational creatures i don't know who uh the the pre-homo sapiens yeah i think they i think they argue that they were okay uh, i think the neanderthals I believe had larger brains. Okay. Um, it's, it's not a topic I know much about. Well, I'm just, uh, this is just a hypothetical, okay. right? And it's just, yeah. so it turns, so 
I think it. I think it would be not wrong to say that Jesus took on Homo sapien form. Sure. So what if it turns out that there's an island we haven't explored somehow? Okay, somehow it's out there. Okay. And on it are still Neanderthals, and then it turns out they are. They don't speak English, but they are. You know, they they speak Nongo Dongo. <laughs> okay. But then they can learn English, and they learn English. You know, over the course of fifty years, like two generations. Okay. And then they're like, "Oh, now I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior." They're like, oh, okay. okay. Um, I, 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 well, like what? What would you? What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think like the the important part of in the Christian tradition, the important part of human nature is sort of like the rational aspects. Mm. So. Like the, the particular material is not that important as important. So, yeah, the idea of the soul yeah comes into it. Like humans are embodied souls. Yeah, and yeah, that that matters more than than the particular materials the, that yeah, they that you're made up of. Yeah, than the particular evolutionary history. Mm. But so, 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 what, so just what, being able to attain to to a certain level of rationality mm. is what constitutes someone as human. So then, the idea that Jesus took on human form and then, in his resurrection, um, ascended, uh, brought the human nature into, uh, brought the human nature such that it could be perfected. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it then only referring to the rational, as opposed to the whole human being? As in, like, I mean, you are a Thomas, so it's, <laughs> so for you. So let's go. For for you, a human close. being is to yeah. have this hand, feet, yeah, legs, I mean, yeah. arms, eyes, eyebrows. If you don't have an eyebrow, you're not a human being. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, right? But for a non-Thomist, uh, a Cartesian dualist who sure. holds that um, the soul and body are two separate things. And you know this because you can imagine you existing without a body. Yeah. Well... What about those guys? Like a Christian, that's a Cartesian dualist. What would what do you, what would you, what do you think the response would be to to my proposition that we came across a species of humans that were not right? Well, I Homo mean, sapiens. Yeah, they would think that the material aspects don't really matter. Hmm. It's only you know some added accident of human beings. So it would be the same with like an, a Martian. Yeah. Yeah, be the same. Like I, yeah. But even as a Thomist, I don't see how it really, like the the particular evolutionary history of whatever material aspect yeah. human beings have. Yeah. Like I, I don't see how that's necessarily relevant to humans as rational beings. Sorry, what do you mean? So, talk talk like right. Here, Amos. I'm talking into the microphone. If you like, move your chair so you're more comfortable, so you can lean. Like, if you, I don't know how you want to sit. This thing keeps falling down. Is the problem? Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. What if you tighten that thing right there? Yeah. Okay. You tighten it. All right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, what do you? What did you mean? So. Um. Like what? What makes a human being a human being? Is that they're a material entity, but a material entity that has rationality. Right, the latter is what I would say. Yeah, yeah. 
and so like you know the fact that there's um caucasian human beings with a slightly different evolutionary history mm-hmm. than than uh asian like homo sapiens yeah doesn't doesn't really matter right because they're they're just homo sapiens. they're the rational beings yeah with material bodies or right. i mean yeah they're rational beings and so it's like the the rational aspect yeah is what matters okay so it's a rational but i mean even with our diverse um members of the species of human uh, homo sapiens you know yeah. you have like the you have everyone uh, not everyone there's a there's a range of how people look yeah and you know skin color nose size eye size mouth size jaw size whatever yeah but you're still under homo sapien sure right so if you had neanderthals if you had neanderthals okay is it possible not is it possible you're saying that within the christian framework those people would still be can would still be um what's the word receive salvation that's the word i'm looking for sure yeah 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 so, if if hypothetically there was some yeah yeah some sort of suppose like a, that split off the evolution yeah. branch at some point uh-huh. they had the same sort of rationality interesting yeah so it's the rationality that's important yeah so then if a robot <laughs> okay said hey amos after years of reading the bible <laughs> okay i have come to believe that jesus christ um is the second person of the holy trinity and um he is the fulfillment of the old testament prophecies and he's the messiah that the jews the second temple jews are waiting for okay and i now believe that he is god and he died and rose from the dead and i await his second coming I want to be a Christian. <laughs> what would you say to a, to an AI then, if it's if it's if the material is not that important, and they seem to and they seem clearly to be rational? Um, well, they seem to be rational, but then again, we're gonna have to get back to our discussion of mm. like intentionality, right? How like does intentionally intentionality just add up from like a certain amount of of syntax? Like, there, can you get semantics? I'm just having a certain amount of complicated syntax okay. and symbol manipulation. So, can you explain the John Searle's Chinese room? Because it, it would be yeah, I think that would be, would be that quite would helpful. So he talks about like, say um, you're locked in a room mm-hmm. and you have a manual, yeah, and you and you memorize this. Man- so people hand in symbols, and you're supposed to uh, put out different symbols yeah. depending on the symbol that you receive uh-huh. in the in the in slot. Yeah, and uh, you memorize this manual. So you know, say a symbol. I don't know. Think of a random Chinese symbol. Yeah, and it corresponds to a different Chinese symbol, and you just memorize like a bunch of hypothetical um, propositions. So, if I receive symbol A, I'm supposed to put out symbol X. If I receive symbol B, yeah. I'm supposed to put out Z. And you just memorize all those those uh, conditionals. Uh, you would never understand the symbols that you're that giving are, back. Yeah, you wouldn't understand what's coming in and what's going out because you're just 
processing. Yeah, you're just processing different symbols. Okay. And so in the case of artificial intelligence, yeah, John Searle and yourself would be saying, what these guys are doing, they're just processing it, but not understanding what the process is. Yeah. Like so, the, so just as the guy in the room, like never actually learns like language Chinese. Yeah. Uh, or ma- like Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, yeah, the ro- like the robot, the AI, never actually learns um, like the intentionality behind the symbols that they're going to put. Okay. So it'd be like a calculator when you put five plus five. And it, it it outputs ten. It doesn't understand. Yeah. Five and no addition and yeah. E- the equal simple. Yeah. Simple. Okay. So then you would say the AI who seems super intelligent, yeah, would. It's closer to. It's it's not a human being, because it can, it, it it doesn't understand what it's doing. Yeah. Even though it looks like it understands what it's doing. Yeah. Okay. So like Siri doesn't understand when I say, not Siri, Google, Alexa, whatever, doesn't understand when I say, hey, Alexa, play so-and-so. They're like, playing? No, no, no. No. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, part of the reason why is, you know, there's this new... (laughs) I don't know if I sent you this article, but there's this new sexuality called digisexuality. Uh, Have you heard of it? You didn't send me that article. Okay, digisexuality is when a person has is attracted to or are or is in a relationship with a digital a digital thing. Okay. Not a digital person, not a person on the other end of the yeah, um, digital world, but like Siri, Alexa, <laughs> um, things like that. It's similar to like the movie Her. Yeah. I've ne- I haven't seen it, but it's similar to that. Or like if you've seen Blade, not Blade. Oh my goodness. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Yeah. Twenty forty seven or forty nine. Whatever yeah. the new one. He falls in love with one of those. Yeah, right. it's very sad, very moving. the The whole thing is very moving, you know, in the end. Yeah, I've not seen Blade Runner. I've seen her. But. Okay, so it's it. So then the question is, with these things, who clear? Like I, I this digital digi digital sexuality or digi sexuality, mm. it's become. I think it's going to become so common in the future. Yeah, that you're going to have to do something. Like I wouldn't be surprised if Japan came out saying that these things now have rights because they're Japanese men. I think it mainly seem to be Japanese men that are in love with these weird like anime digital characters and right. they have like some have sexual relations with, relations with them. Don't know how it works but you know. Yeah, I mean I'm sure that could happen. It's a possibility. I think it would be kind of sad like if you know, if if the Chinese argument holds, yeah, and there's no like under no reciprocal understanding, but just simple manipulation, hmm. it's almost just like a complicated process of self-deception. Hmm. That's interesting. If you know, if you have an AI girlfriend, yeah, that has like complicated inputs and outputs, yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't know if it could be. Can you call it love? Willing the good of the other. 
I don't think so. Hmm. Non-reciprocal love? Is there such thing as a non-reciprocal love? Uh, yeah. Yeah? I think so. Like if, if a parent loves their child, but the child despises the parent? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Why do you think it is that, so it's <laughs> with like Japan being like, everyone being crammed in the one space, like a tiny space, there's like a ton, millions of millions of people are crammed in one space. And it's becoming more popular, the urban nightlife, okay. the urban lifestyle. It's very unnatural for human beings to live in such cramped spaces, right? Yeah. What kind of effect do you think it has on people? Um, like in terms of... Well, I think it would be degrading in some sense, like to their sense of self-worth. Hmm. If, um, you know, you don't, you don't have much property, you're always renting, mm-hmm. nothing to call your own. Uh, you're not necessarily able to make all the decision, like the best decisions with the, the resources you have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you're just not able to find uh, a lasting place <clears throat> in, in giant metropolises, I don't think. Mm. Unless you have like a, a well-established community, uh, people who are in the same metropolis for years and years and years. But even still, uh, if you'd go out into the streets, there's a sense where I'm never seeing people I know. Mm. There's not there's not a sense of familiarity here. Okay. And and it, and this is a very new phenomenon in human history. Yeah, it's is a pretty it? new phenomenon. Like, I mean, with, with the rise of, of capitalism. Yeah. Like, city populations have just exploded. Yeah. And the country, country population is just like dwindled. Hmm. Like the, um, yeah, I forget what the ratio is, but, yeah, it's it's pretty astounding. Like most most ancient or medieval cities, like Rome being an exception because yeah. it was pretty similar to to modern capitalist cities in the way that it was able to uh, just get all sorts of resources from elsewhere in the empire mm-hmm. and run itself. But most most cities didn't grow to more than like a hundred thousand that have a huge rural area servicing that city. Right, like all the, the most of the amenities would come from the immediate area. Okay. All the produce would be grown close by, mm-hmm. but yeah. Do you think it's important to go back to something like that to save humans from themselves? Um, you know, like I, I think it's necessary to have a moral economy and think that the economy exists for the sake of the. Um, One sec, Amos. Okay, I'm just gonna. Oh yeah, sorry, we're back. I yeah. mean, we didn't really go because it was paused, but. We had to take a little break. <laughs> yeah, we take a uh, uh, the nature. Nature was calling. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were talking about cities. And yeah, how natural it is, and why it might be good to f- recover some sort of. Yeah, I think um, so. I, IG and I read this book, uh, "Why Liberalism Failed" by Patrick Tunin. Mm-hmm. Patrick is a professor at. He's a yeah. He's a um, professor at Notre Dame. Uh, he's a law professor. I think he's. Yeah, I think so. I fear, uh, maybe he's political philosophy, actually. Mm, okay. Yeah. Anyway, Wait. so he he makes the point that um, the idea of unbounded freedom hmm. has sort of had a lot of negative human consequences. So I guess in starting uh, like later in the Enlightenment, the idea of of what freedom and rights were. 
shifted quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So whereas before, the idea of, of freedom is that um, you know there's, there's certain negative dispositions that every human has just by nature of being a human. Mm. So I have, I have dispositions to just all sorts of like terrible things. I have bad bad disordered desires. Yeah. Um, like I want to dominate other people and become a powerful tyrant mm-hmm. is is like at the heart of every human. Yeah. It's sort of like Plato's belief. Um, and but like we as individual humans can only be free uh, if we learn to suppress those passions through region through reason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and establish wise restraints that make us free is is a common term that gets tossed around. Um. Yeah, and, and societies can only be free if they put limitations in place in order for them to attain their proper good, which was like human flourishing. Yeah, Humans could be rational and seek the truth. Uh, they could be good and live a moral life together as, as families, as communities, mm. and as, as city-states. And, um, you know, beauty and the arts played a role in, in the human good as well. But um, we were only free, uh, like morally economically and other things if we we put restraints in place which would enable uh, the greatest number of people well not just the greatest number of people but the greatest number of people to to share in in this common good of, of society and uh i guess with around the enlightenment uh talk of the common good came to be viewed with some suspicion mm-hmm. and um freedom was also sort of redefined no longer had reference to the natural ends of human nature, like human flourishing, rationality, finding the truth, but freedom, um, freedom was thought of just in terms of like, um, our ability to indeterminately exercise the will to Mm. whatever end we want. Even if it's, even if the end is a a base, not good desire. Something bad. So whereas before you could only be free if you suppress the desires that wanted, you know, that tended towards tyranny, yeah, um, freedom would be, you know, the freedom to express either of those things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, <clears throat> people wanted to have checks and balances in place mm-hmm. to ensure that there wouldn't be tyranny, which would suppress other people's desires, mm-hmm. or which would suppress other people's ability to exercise their will, you know, or in order to pursue their desires. Yeah, and I guess that's that's sort of become the basis for for modern society. And so rights tended to be thought of in terms of um, uh, like the government can't interfere with your ability to express yourself. Uh, so, you know, you need freedom of speech whereas talk of freedom of speech beforehand would be, um, you know, I need to be free in order to find the truth and express the truth. Mm-hmm. And I guess like in, in terms of like economics that came to be understood quite differently as well. So you're economically free if you are able to have property and use it wisely in order to attain your ends, the classical understanding, mm-hmm. whereas uh, in the modern understanding, you're you're free if you're able to um, interact with the market in whatever way yeah. you see fit. So modern economic freedom includes like freedom to, I guess, trample down other people. Okay. Whereas classical freedom didn't have that. Okay. And like it was always defined in terms of the good. Excuse me. When you say suppression, uh, when you say uh, cl- in the classical sense, freedom is the uh, is is when one suppresses their 
base desires or some sort of negative or bad desires. Yeah. It's not just like a suppression because you can suppress lots. It's more so that the that the intellect overrules yeah. the will and controls the will and the emotions or the desires. Yeah. Whereas now it's the opposite. It's it's like in the in modern society, it's the will that controls the intellect. Yeah. I desire this. I want to express myself as this. I want to do this, and therefore I should be allowed to do this. Yeah. And to secure those things, I get the government to interfere on my behalf. Yeah. So yeah, I guess also in, in, in most modern states, the idea is that like the like the government legislates in order to secure your freedoms, mm-hmm. so, or legislates or re- refrains from legislating in order to secure those freedoms. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I guess there's a debate among like uh, classical liberals and progressive liberals whether or not the government should interfere to to secure conditions necessary for you to express your freedom mm-hmm. so whether, whether or not we need a welfare state uh whether or not we need government to secure people's ability to uh you know to gender expression and other things mm-hmm. like that but yeah it, it is always like freedom is always a turn defined in terms of um just exercise of the will to whatever to whatever ends right rather than only exercise of the will towards the ends which perfect human nature right and the, and that has affected so many things yeah right and negatively affected so many things because now you have i mean a very trivial example would be the fact that we have an enormous amount of people that are enormous oh like obesity yeah obesity that's uh, that's a very trivial example now. yeah because you're like okay you know your intellect. Your intellect knows that you shouldn't be overweight, and you know your body knows, like your body tells you when you're not feeling good, you're not feeling great. Right. But then you just continually keep on eating. You see that get you like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna eat it, eat it. You know, and then some people and tons of people go on diets. Yeah. You know, and they're like, I'm gonna go on diet, and then like three days into the diet, you know, it's like, oh, you know what? Actually, I can cheat one day. Do it. Yeah. But where where you know you know your intellect knows that you're going on this diet and you must constrain yourself to not eating you know certain foods or something. It's very. I'm just giving a trivial example, right? Because there's no emphasis on the intellect ruling your will and your emotion. Yeah, there's no emphasis of that. That on you knowing the what what's good for your nature and acting to attain. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to do. Many people don't do it. Yeah, you know and. And I think that's, I mean, that's negatively affected us, uh, our society, right. where you've had you have this uh, un- unconstrained freedom, and it, I, I don't know, I would don't even, I wouldn't even use the word freedom. It'd be like unconstrained hell or something, you know, something <laughs> closer to that, to okay. that effect, you know, because having the ability to do whatever you want to do is hell, you know, because when you, because if you really think about it. You know for a fact that when you are most free is when you have control over your desires. Yeah, like that's when that's when you a man knows that they they are most free. A man and and by man I mean both a man and a woman. Okay, you can't believe I have to say this. People, 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 kind. If you're Justin Trudeau, who just that's a different yeah. topic. <laughs> yeah, that's a different topic. but um, what was I saying? Right, you know for a fact that you are most free when your intellect controls your 
your desires and your will. Yeah. You know, you're like, I know I shouldn't do this. You know, I know I shouldn't steal. Uh, let's say I, I know I shouldn't get drunk. Yeah. Because it's not good for me in the following morning. I have blah, 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 whatever it may be. You know, but I have a tendency to drink ex- ex- excessively. And you know you have that. And yep. then your intellect says, you my, I was going to say a certain word, but I'm not going to say, you my biatch. <laughs> you my biatch. Well, you're not doing anything today. I'm your boss. We're going to read instead or something, right? Yeah. Whereas someone who doesn't have that would be like, they know I shouldn't do this because I, you know, I have a, a tendency to get drunk and be rowdy. Oh, I'll just maybe like one drink. Next thing you know, it's like your twentieth drink. You, you know, you're going around trying to beat the bouncer, and the bouncer broke off your teeth or something. Okay, you know. Um, all to say, I had a point to why, why why I was bringing that up. Oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say when it comes to any sort of. Uh, I mean, I'm going to give the example of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. Uh, to do to be really good at Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, when you watch someone, they're not randomly flailing their body around because they're free to do so. Yeah. You know, but when you watch them, it's so beautiful because they know exactly what they're doing. They're moving correctly. Yeah. But then, if you throw in a ran- if you throw in a new person into the into the onto the mats and say, mm-hmm. "Okay, you're gonna go, you're gonna go roll with this guy who's been doing it for five, six years." Yeah. And the new person, for them, freedom because it's unconstrained freedom because you don't. Right, and you just move around randomly, haphazardly. Yeah, you get injured. You don't know what you're doing. The person, but the person who dominates is the one who knows how to move and has wisely control their body. wisely control their body, like restrain themselves. Yeah, in certain ways. And yeah. that's that's exactly it. And I think that's applicable to almost any piano. Piano is one too. Yeah, you can that's play the piano without constraint, and it'll sound like crap. Yeah. Now, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a good one. That's why you beat me up last time you took that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you'll have to come back. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And I mean, Patrick Deneen goes on. Um, I think like his book really did affect the way I, th- I, my thinking. Yeah. And you probably would say the same. Yeah, I mean, it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sort of like primer for the classical moral theory. Hmm. But yeah. I think his point about one thing that really um, got me thinking a lot was the fact that he uh, was his point when he said um, human beings uh, part of uh, part of the common individualism is to is to divorce oneself from their community, yeah, where they belong, and then just like pluck themselves up and try to reroute themselves somewhere else, random, right? Urban cities, generally urban yeah. places. Um, and he said that, but he he would talk about like the whole economic system that's meant to do that. Yes, yeah. So he he often says free free market economics were planned because they needed to deconstruct classic like more organic forms of of economic relations in order to have you know in order to have people be free to just move wherever they want mm-hmm. to. Uh, yeah, you need to secure international trade deals in order to be able to get cheap products from China. Yeah in order to exercise your economic freedom that way. And so there, there's quite a bit of of government and economic systems that needed to be created in order for that to happen. And, you know, like I'm personally, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm torn because free, tra- free market is great, in my opinion. It seems to, yeah. do, it brings people out of poverty. It gives people opportunities. It levels the ground right. for many 
because we we're no longer in a we're no longer in a as I was mentioning to you earlier today we're we're no longer playing the uh, social hierarchy games you know yeah you can succeed without being the highest on the totem pole of things I mean yeah not the totem pole I, I also learned that totem pole totem on totem pole poles the most important one is the one on the bottom because it's the foundation yeah my friend Rob told me that um shout out to rob if you're listening to this um but uh when it comes to what the heck why did i bring up totem pole social hierarchy social hierarchies because we're not playing social hierarchy games anymore we're playing people can the the internet is like leveled the playing fields that anyone almost anyone could become could reach the status of what our what our previous uh, generations had to um, achieved by being in hierarchies you know yeah no there's, like there's definitely benefits to like modern market economies but like they don't necessarily need to exclude a definition of the good hmm. like they you you don't need someone to control and determine all the prices at, yeah. at a central planning committee or something like that in order for there to be economic freedom in the classical sense uh-huh you would just need to make sure that there are some restraints in place that that secure the good for people. Okay. So you know, you you want to make sure there's some restraints in place so that you know locally owned businesses don't get uh, competed out of existence. By and so like that, giant like, firms, yeah, and giant so, companies. Like I don't know if there's um, like a local inn or mm. a local tavern or something. Yeah. And a big chain comes. Yeah. Uh, what what's going to end up happening? Is that the people are going to get competed out of existence, and then they're not going to make as much money. Uh, like they'll, they'll, a lot of people end up working for the competitor. They'll no longer be business owners, and so that sort of like, you know, wrecks a lot of their economic mm-hmm. prosperity. Mm-hmm. And eventually, it just gets sort of piled up where only a few people own everything. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so having having some sort of restraints in place mm-hmm. to to secure equality and to sec- like make sure that people actually attain the good. Right. It's completely fine. Yeah. And like, I think a lot of people who were classically like, or sorry, who, who were previously really into free markets have sort of started to shift away from that position. Um, Marco Rubio, well, you know, I don't, I don't particularly like anything about him, Yeah, but he, he recently just wrote an article about why, um, like economic choice or, um, why you know being forced to move to a big city in order to work for a firm mm-hmm. instead of being able to stay in the town that you're in is yeah. not economic freedom Interesting. there's no, there's no in- industry there it's been completely destroyed by okay competition by big business interesting so you, you so it's not economic freedom because you have to uproot yourself yeah. to find the freedom yeah you're not free to stay where you are right but the, that's where I think the internet probably does level the ground. Oh, the internet does for sure. You know, because you could do, I mean, of, like if you're, I mean, I was going to say, if you're a carpenter, then the internet doesn't help you at all, but it actually does help you. Yeah. If you're a carpenter and you make very cool, you make cool stuff, then you could put it up on like Instagram and like Facebook and like, TikTok or whatever it is, you know, you can you can put it up on that, and people will see, wow, this this guy does such cool, amazing work and makes all these cool tables, and and let me buy something because 
you know, he was famous or he like he's doing really well and I enjoy stuff or whatever it is. Um, so I, I guess the other thing would be, I'm trying to think of a trade work that the internet doesn't really help in in in, in one sense. Plumber. I was just thinking that plumber. Yeah. But I mean, it does help. Like if you have a plumbing business and you have right. a website and stuff, and it's you're like, but it's only helpful for local. Exactly. Yeah, like you can't, you can't outsource. Not outsource. You can't send your plumbing skills somewhere. Like whereas with a carpenter, you can ship a table. Yeah. You create it with your hands. With a plumbing, with a plumber, I don't think you can. Can you? No. Neither can an electrician. Yeah. But you could, you could do cool stuff. Because generally, if you're not an electrician and you have no clue about how electricians do their stuff, like you don't know how complicated it is and how neat they try to they make the wires go, you know? Yeah. So like my my brother-in-law's an electrician, and like he like he'll every now and then he'll send a video of like him putting the wires together. I'm like, what the frick? This is beautiful, you know? Like this is beautiful artwork here. Just okay. Like, sh- just like nicely coming around the corners and organized you know, well. it's, yeah. it's organized so well so yeah i guess the internet doesn't always level the playing field for all things no but it, it helps significantly like people more people are able to stay in their small towns and not have to move to cities to find work mm. yeah that's true so like with in terms of like um liberalism forcing people to move out of places and um, being divorced, being uh, forcing people, forcing is not, well, maybe I'll just use the word, like making people um, disconnected with their families, their traditions, you know, and yeah. being st- and coming to an urban place and trying to start a new, fresh, all things, trying to remake the connection. If you're not already connected, if you don't have a if you don't have some sort of foundational common ground with people, it's very hard to do that if you're fresh. Yeah. You know, like, and that's why I think Christians in general have an advantage when they move around. Right. At least if you're Christians who go to church. If you're not, it's obviously, you know, it's, it, there's no real difference. Between. Yeah, it can be a real source of community. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. So Christian, uh, like churches can, it is a real source of community because, yeah, you've uprooted and you don't have family here and you, I don't know. You don't have friends. You don't have any new friends. I mean, sorry, you don't have any friends, but you can go to church. Yeah. And you know that the people in the church share common grounds with you. Yeah. It's common beliefs. So then it's that commonality, the foundation, it's already set. Now you just have to make sure that you find friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's not the case. So, and the other thing is, um, because we, are tribalistic in our human beings are tribalistic or community oriented social beings. Yeah. People will always look for that, you know, even so if you don't have a church, you're going to look for it somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I don't know where you look for it. You look for it at gyms. You look for it at parties. You look for it at, um, on the internet. You have Reddit subgroups, (laughs) you know, maybe that, maybe that's what they're doing. Twitter media. Twitter. What? Twitter meetups? What the heck's that? I don't know if you're all tweeting about the same thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like that. Like you're always looking for some sort of community. It's a very human thing. Yeah. But we, in with liberalism, 
it's a DM, it's there's a de-emphasis on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the point is, is like, like liberal freedom is the, the freedom of the autonomous individual before they have commitments to, uh, I mean, before the social contract, before they have like family commitments, social commitments and other things. And it's just meant to be an indeterminate freedom without obligations. Mm. And uh, Deneen has some solutions at the end, right? I mean, he just like, he like suggests blazes through it. Like, I think one of which is like um, the idea of, he mentions the idea of a farmer's market as being good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It says farmer, you can explain. Yeah, buy locally, uh, support local businesses because like you're, you're also helping, like you're acting for the common good in the community that you're in mm-hmm. with people you actually know. Yeah. And so that, that sort of establishes connection. And, you know, you have an obligation to those people. Uh, like, you know, you can't help everyone but you can't help the people around you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, helping their business thrive, that's something that's obligated. Um, yeah. He also talks about like uh, a real need to reemphasize education in, in like local places. So he, like Dinin's a Catholic, so he talks about like the need for uh, Catholics to really emphasize building up their own community in education and, you know, trying to integrate people into this tight-knit community. Yeah. But putting the emphasis on, like, you know, building a community. Around? Like, I mean, he, he wants to build it around the church. Okay. But just in general, like, you know, yeah, work work with people in your community and establish, like, close, tight-knit relations mm. and try to integrate people into that. And, and that's a very, like... I, that seems like a very repulsive thing to say in our society because in one sense, because you live so close to people in like yeah. close-knit spaces. Yeah, I don't know my neighbors. Something would think that I'm at moral fault for not knowing them yeah. and not like, you know, walking through life with them. Right. And, and you, I think, you know, that's pretty fair. And you have a sense of um, privacy, like I want my own space. Yeah. You know, I need my own space, and I think that's that's something that I've that I've found di- uh, different coming here to Canada is like growing up, and maybe this is the case with mo- like if you live in rural Canada, you know, but growing up in India, we always had people over. I mean, maybe too often, right? Like when we were kids, when my little sister was baby, you know. It, we always had people, and my mom, you know, my mom was being my mom, and she would always have people over and, you know, host people, people would, like, stay at our house, and random people would just show up. It's like, hello, yeah. just dropping by, and there's, you know, at that point, we don't have phones. The right. people just show up, and they'll stay for tea, biscuits, and then at the, sometimes some people would even just stay around because they knew they would get food if they stayed around, so they would just stay, get food. Yeah. Um but here it's a very different i mean i i know that i I'm, I'm guilty of this as well where if someone says oh are you free you know in 3 hours to meet up i'll be like bro you should have told me this yesterday yeah you know it's 3 hours if you think about 3 hours it's like it's a long time yeah enough time but would you just end up staying at home and being like well i'd plan to read tonight <laughs> yeah exactly so it was it is different cuz here you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 
generally, if you have family coming up to meet you, they'll always give you a call. It's like, hey, let's plan on meeting up so and so. Yeah. Can I come by? Yeah. You know. It, but if you rat, if you if you, if some of your family members randomly showed up to your doorstep, what the hell are you doing here? You know. <laughs> but you know, back home, always did it. Like I remember my um. I don't know if I should share this, but my one of my family members, they were a high-ranking politician, and their house was just like their father was um, sat. My sorry, my cousin's grandfather was assassinated. Okay, and his father was there was an attempted attempted assassination on him as well. Hmm. Um, he's a politician, so their house, no joke. <laughs> to enter their house, you had to go through security. Okay. And there are people with like big guns. They're like guns, like yeah, gu- like a, like the ones you put on the. I don't know what they're called. It's not an AK. They had AK forty seven, but they had a gun that you could actually like shoot people with. Like you just kind of mounted it, and you know, okay. I don't know what they're called. Like a big mounted machine. Like gun. a big mounted machine, machine gun. That's what it would be. Okay. And to go there, you have to go through this, and there's like a, there's like about a fifty meter drive way that you had to walk. Okay. So like when we would visit them. We never called them because we didn't have phones. Yeah. So we just kind of walk and you'd feel like you're about to get shot because these soldiers would just like, just get up and they're all like staring at you. Yeah. And you go up and like, hey man, who do you, what are you doing here? What's your name? And you tell them, it's like, I'm coming here to visit my aunt and uncle. Do they know you're coming? It's like, no. And then they're like, call them. And then my cousins will come down. It's like, oh, yeah, I let them in. (laughs) <laughs> and so we go in and then we're fine when you go in but we never told them we're coming right and you just show up and you you know play games there hang out you just hang out eat their food they, they would feed you they'd, they'd be like oh do you need food they need, and they always had pork nice like, every day had pork and so they'd be like oh here eat food eat food eat food and they make you eat food yeah like no no I gotta go home like, no 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 stay 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 the night stay the night <laughs> but here you don't get that you know I mean maybe when you were growing up in Newfoundland you had that did you? Uh, a tiny bit, but not not that much. But it's weird, though. Yeah. It's, uh, no, it's something that I've, I've been trying to like relearn lately. Like, you know, people just show up, like friends of friends. They they need a place to stay. Oh, I guess we'll let you stay here. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm th- it got me thinking because Deneen, in one sense, is talking about that kind of community. Yeah. Right. That close knit community that you have. Yeah. With family and you with friends. But it's it's rare to do that here. Yeah. Well, I I think sort of individualism is is pretty ingrained. Say that again. Individualism is ingrained into our culture. Can you unlearn it? Like, is it possible to unlearn it? Oh, for sure. You think so? Yeah. What if you went and <laughs> if you went removed yourself and lived in the boonie and <laughs> started like a there's there's a there's a Catholic cult you know out um yeah out near Bancroft yeah you know about that. Uh, the society of something yeah call. your wife was telling me last night yeah they're weird yeah it sounds pretty wild yeah like do you have to do something like that no no you, I don't think you need to do that but <laughs> like I mean you just need to just know that you're obligated to people hmm. that come into your life like I don't know people at your church if they need something people at your gym if they need something right anything like that like, you know it's you can only be a, a flourishing human if you if you like if you take part in the common good 
it, you know, if you fulfill mm. your obligations that you have to other people. And how and, like obligations that I mean that that can come with a bit of weight, but it's like you know friendships aren't really obligations, but mm. that's that you know, you find your you're good in friendships and you're a deficient person if you're if you don't have friendships. How would you define the common good? How do I define the yeah. common good? Um yeah the good that is common to all <laughs> good that is common to all um no i guess like the idea of, of the common good is that they're the highest goods are goods that you can share mm. so like, we're, we're rational animals we're the only animals that that have rationality we're the only ones who can do complex mathematics the only ones who can do science and philosophy and write good literature and um those those things those are like intellectual products that can be shared and those help us in our everyday lives know how to live know how to make good decisions so that you know life isn't so horrid and being able to share in those things is is like a good like we're because like truth can be shared hmm. it's something that we're obligated to share hmm. and so like truth goodness beauty um those those are things that can be common goods okay okay well amos thanks for this can end right there yes, good, be on the podcast how to do it again yeah of talk course about we're all the other stuff that we left out i know there's a, quite a few things that we want to talk about we didn't get to yeah um, but we'll have to do that another time all right amos all right hey thanks so much for listening to this episode i hope you enjoyed it and i hope you found something helpful or you learned something new from it uh, if you didn't know we have a uh, kazingram dialogue shop that you can go um, and you can check out some of our uh, merchandise there. If you want to support us, you can support us through the shop. Uh, you can also support us by giving up, giving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us and helps other people find Kazingram Dialogue. We are on a mission to get people to discuss ideas rationally, and you can help us by sharing Kazingram Dialogue, by sharing this episode, by sharing other episodes that you've enjoyed on social media. If you haven't followed us on social media, please do. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, peace out. <laughs>